Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. It's time to podcast, and I'm delighted to be welcoming Dr. Tara Isabella Burton, novelist, essayist, polymath, and my dear friend, to talk about her latest nonfiction book, Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. Tara is the author of the novel Social Creature, The World Cannot Give, and the forthcoming Here in Avalon, as well as another nonfiction book, Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World. She's written everywhere, and she and her husband also have a substack called Line of Beauty, and much of this stuff will be linked in the show notes. For their part, millionaires were happy to take this new religion of prosperity as, well, gospel. Plenty of the Gilded Age's robber barons spoke glowingly of this modern revelation. John D. Rockefeller, at one time the country's richest man, was also a regular churchgoer and Sunday school teacher at the Erie Street Baptist Mission Church, where he frequently sought to justify his own wealth on religious grounds. In one Sunday school address, Rockefeller summarily informed his young and impressionable listeners that, quote, the growth of a large business is merely the survival of the fittest, and thus a fully appropriate subject to discuss before church. The Christian squeamishness about the less fortunate had to be squashed. After all, he insisted, the American beauty rose can be per- produced in the splendor and fragrance which bring cheer to, the, to its beholder only by sacrificing the early buds which grow up around it. This wasn't, he hastened to add, an evil tendency, but rather the working out of a law of nature and a law of God. That is uh, a quote from Self Made. Um, Tara, do you want to give us the subtitle of that book and tell us what this book is and what it was that we just heard? So Self Made subtitle is Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. Uh, and although the subtitle that was rejected that I wanted to use was self-made, how we became gods. And both of those uh, subtitles, I think, speak to the story of self-made, which is it is an intellectual history of the idea of self-creation, looking at the self-made man historically and the dandy who creates their life as a work of art as counterintuitively two sides of the same coin. And in telling that story, it explores how this idea of personal power, personal creativity, and ultimately individual internal desire have become seen as constitutive of our authentic humanity. Yeah, it is. It's a fantastic book. It's sort of very much a kind of companion to Tara's first nonfiction book, um, Strange Rites. Um, New Religions for a Godless Age, I think was the subtitle of that one. Uh, Godless World, yeah. Godless yeah. World, sorry. Um, yeah, so it's it's very much a, um, it's a series of linked essays that take us on a kind of weird journey, uh, starting from Albert Durer, um, who I guess was not kind of as, kind of as well, uh, as much of a name check as Da Vinci, um, through to contemporary transhumanism and weird Silicon Valley people and Kim Kardashian. Um, we actually lined up with OnlyFans, I think. Yeah, oh, that's yeah, right. Caroline, Caroline Calloway. Calloway. God bless her. <laughs> Who you and I once actually saw in no, Brooklyn. I wasn't there. You I didn't there? make it. I was waylaid by uh, a crisis, as you uh, recall. Oh my gosh, that was incredible. That was like, yeah, this is actually, this is linked. Well, we, boy, okay. Rabbit trails. I'm sorry. Let me get a hold of myself. Um, anyway, this is a very weird book because it is going to describe things, um, sort of a series of episodes of kind of, tra- it's a kind of series of trend pieces, but like starting with the Renaissance, but it's much, much more than that. It's also 
weird in the sense that it is a popular level book, but it's also original academic research. So this is not doing a Carl Truman where you are summarizing Charles Taylor and Philip Reef and other people's work. You are actually doing um, a series of pretty in-depth, I can't, like, I mean, I know, I know some of the reading that you did for this. Um, you read a lot of weird stuff. And, <laughs> and you kind of pulled out of that reading um, a story about how we got some of the ideas that we currently have about what it means to be human or to live a good life. And a lot of those stories that you tell along the way seem really alien to us and to each other. Um, but they're definitely all kind of getting at the same thing, um, which I, yeah. So do you want to just kind of like give us a, a little bit of a tour? Like what are some of those highlights? And how do we land up with, with, with the Rockefellers, which is the quote yeah. we just began? That's, yeah, let's, let's, let's go into that, actually into that chapter in particular. I, because, I love this book. Yeah, this is, this is excellent. Um, and that chapter in particular, I think, is really kind of helpful because it talks specifically about the role of money and the role of wealth and the kind of weird spirituality of wealth that was going on in, say, like 1890 America. Right. So self-made takes the reader on this kind of double journey, looking at the the dandy and the entrepreneur as these two manifestations of this belief in the self's ability to chart its own destiny as being a kind of a quality sort of that all humans have, but really that certain special humans have a kind of legitimization of leapfrogging the social order. Um, so it's in a sense, I think self-making is often thought of as this very like progressive, liberatory, we can all create ourselves. And actually, I argue historically from the Renaissance onwards, the, the genius or like any kind of self-made individual falls into this category of aristocrat of spirit or secret internal aristocrat in the renaissance they're often coded uh, rhetorically as like bastard children of god or nature sort of like the demigods of uh the classical world and this kind of sense that there's some kind of aristocracy some kind of specialness takes two forms what i call the democratic and aristocratic strain uh in europe with uh, Beau Brummel and a certain kind of dandy culture. Self-making is often more explicitly uh, reactionary. It's about trying to combat um, the burgeoning middle class who can make money with a, a sense of internal personal power, wit, uh, ton, or, or taste uh, in, in the Regency England, uh, something that can set you ap apart from the common herd. Now, in America, the narrative, at least in initially, uh, caveat these things start to converge in the 20th century, is a little bit different. We have the Benjamin Franklin, Frederick Douglass narrative of work hard and, you know, you can become anyone. The, the American dream narrative that, that probably everyone listening to this has heard in some form or another. But what becomes really interesting to me is that... Throughout this whole process, both in Europe and America, there's a kind of spiritual or even um, occult, perhaps, is, is, is too scary a word, but um, mystical and non-traditional religious dimension, that there's some kind of divine power or divine energy 
that the self-maker has and can harness. The self-maker is a kind of god, is not a normal human. And in America, in the 19th century, particularly the late 19th century, that gets supercharged, as it were, by uh, new scientific discoveries that are kind of translated into pseudoscience, uh, A, electricity, and B, evolution. And these kind of uh, ideas that there's some kind of force out there in the universe, some current, some magical, vibey energy um, is, is a hugely influential on uh, the practice of new thought, this kind of self-help early manifested, if you can dream it, you can have it tradition. Uh, and in particular, helps to develop this very gilded age theology of wealth that the rich are are simply the people who can harness this evolutionary energy, electrical, magnetic vibes thing and uh, apply their internal psychic power to the creation of wealth. Importantly, the self-made man and the like cult of the, the, the person who creates their own identity until this time, even in America, was not primarily focused on money. You look at... Um, early essays or, or sort of folk secular hagiographies of self-made men. Someone called Charles Seymour published one. Harriet Beecher Stowe published one. Emerson, of course, had representative men. And they often focused on statesmen, on figures like Abraham Lincoln or Frederick Douglass, who came from nothing and like worked their way up to kind of m modest or extreme success, but through virtue and doing something for the community. Money was not like the thing anyone focused on cut to the Gilded Age, you know, 50 years later, and suddenly money is the thing that proves your worth. It's the thing that proves your internal power. It is like a manifestation of magic. And the people who make it are somehow at the top of this energy vibes totem pole. It gives them splendor and fragrance, uh, like that American oh, yeah. rose that Rockefeller was talking about. <laughs> yeah. It also, I mean, the, the where this kind of eventually went was, I, I mean... Norman Vincent Peale is the kind of like ultimate new thought e Christian e crossover, and he was obviously Donald Trump's you know pastor um, at Marble Collegiate Church, and so this kind of vision of very sort of populist American millionaire billionaire success as har harvesting or harnessing um, the potentially sort of slightly Marianne Williamsony vibes of the universe. Um, it's just, it's, it's really striking and it's really weird. And I thought actually the, the Gilded Age chapter was kind of the one that was most of a crossover with strange rites. And it was also the one that was creepiest to me almost like it, all the, I mean, obviously the transhumanism chapter is incredibly creepy, but, um, just in terms of thinking about the way that say there was, for example, a demon of mammon that really wanted people to worship it and like, try to like you know, get it to possess them, you could do worse than having Andrew Carnegie talk about money this way. Um, yeah, so just, just, just a little Absolutely. Thought. I mean, the way that I would frame it, I mean, this, this research, I won't say it's turned me into a conspiracy theorist that thinks that uh, our, our elites are all mam uh, demonic mammon-worshipping devotees of a cult. But it hasn't. But not. I am closer to that view <laughs> than perhaps I was at the beginning of research. By which I mean that 
I think that um, something that was sort of unexpected when I started Strange... So Strange Rights was originally supposed to be a book on cults. And it was supposed to be a book on... Uh, it was actually... I was I was asked to write, based on a, an essay I'd done for Aeon, uh, like one of those like very short guides to cults. And somehow that turned into, with various negotiations and publishers, the book that Strange Rights became. Uh, in writing Strange Rights and then in writing Self Made... I became conscious that what I was writing was not two stories, but rather two approaches to um, an intellectual commitment that I now hold very strongly, which is that we do have in the internet-saturated modern, postmodern, whatever you want to call it, late capitalist, you can, you can choose your own uh, uh, sociological descriptor here, West. Uh, we do have a growing, burgeoning, implicit civil religion. We have metaphysical assumptions that, regardless of our stated uh, religious identities and beliefs, have kind of made their way into our minds, our, our unspoken assumptions uh, about energy and obligations and the self and what is good and what is bad that would be, I think, incredibly alien to a medieval peasant or even perhaps a Renaissance artisan. And that kind of pseudo-religion, I or not pseudo-religion, uh, that's not the word I want to use at all, uh, this non-normative religious metaphysical tendency, I, I called it in a previous podcast a sort of Franken-religion, because I think it's 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 growing as we as we watch it. It's 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 becoming burgeoning with every it's burgeoning at a faster rate because of the internet, is something that we cannot understand internet modernity without understanding the way in which the divinization of desire that has been such a part of, though not constitutive of, modernity, uh, the kind of sacralization of our own inner states has informed uh, quite literally, practically, and materially the world that we spend most of our time in, by which I mean the world of the internet. Um, the internet is a manifestation of cultural tendencies that, let's say, have been snowballing since the Renaissance. And I don't think we can understand politics. I don't think we can understand the economy. I don't think we can understand the culture wars without seeing them as downstream of the fact that there is just a seismic shift in self-understanding that has a religious character, or at least it has a set of metaphysical, ethical, spiritual assumptions about who we are, who the world is, and how we're meant to interact with it. Who we are, as a, a the, the sort of end game here, which you kind of get to in your uh, in your conclusion, is at the end of all of this process, at the beginning of which you might sort of this is a very kind of like heavy handed, ham fisted uh, way of doing it. But like at the beginning of this, you kind of have human beings are what the, each of us is each of us is um, a creature who God made and had an idea about there. We are part of a kind. We're part of, you know, we share human nature. Um, each of us has a kind of self that is stable, that that um, that we didn't create, that God created and gave to us. Um, Let's put that at 1300, just because that's around where William of Ockham is, and he always needs to come in here. 
Um, and then now what we have is what we are is what we want to be, or what we are is a sort of self that is unrelated to anything given. Um, and a self that you really kind of hammer home is unrelated to other selves, largely. Um, so the turning away from nature and from the given is also turning away from other people. Um, and I thought that that was actually a really strong part of the book that you kept pointing out. Um, the way that the idea of the self as this kind of artistic creation um, slash maybe discovery, but basically creation kind of requires, at least psychologically, or at least this keeps happening. So it seems like it requires it requires a whole bunch of other people to be around to be NPCs, to be non-player characters, or to be people who look at you, or to be people who you can look down on. Um, and it requires you to turn away from sort of the kinds of commitments that, um, commitments to your parents, commitments to um, brothers and sisters who you didn't choose, commitments to friends who might not you know, be as cool as you are. Um, it's a very, very isolating self self creation is a very isolating and fundamentally lonely thing to do. Um, does that, am I representing that accurately? Absolutely. Um, I think that the way that I would frame it is that, um, this, the, the narrative of self creation means that things that you do not choose are not real or they're not real in the way that your feelings are real they're um in my book uh starting in the the chapter on the enlightenment on montaigne and Desad, i i try to describe what i'm trying to talk about as the um the disenchantment of custom and what i mean by that is that starting the enlightenment onwards we see this kind of growing desire to frame the social order as arbitrary and human action as kind of random and weird. Uh, you find this in Montaigne, you find this in Montesquieu. Uh, there's a whole extra genre of this that's sort of traveler's tales where um, there are purported descriptions of uh, of voyages to what was known as the New World or to, to uh, Asia or Africa or, or Tahiti in one case. And like, wow, they do things differently there guess that means that what we do here is weird too and often this has to do with like sexual freedom uh that sexual repression is, is sort of coded as this particularly um kind of arbitrary thing and what all of this does together is to create a sense that uh, where and how you are born the the way that your people do things and of course there's this sort of uh, triumph in this period of the the cosmopolitan uh, the cosmopolitan ideal. I think it's Diderot who either is written to or writes this this sort of praise of someone and says would would no would never ask a man to provide his baptismal register a where he's from because no one is from anywhere. And the the sort of upshot of this is that our anything to which we are born becomes kind of coincidental like sure you're from here you're from there you speak this you you know you this language you you have this this position in society this isn't real what is internal is real and i want to be careful here because obviously in many respects this is a good thing like i i don't think this is unilaterally troubling 
it is it is good and the history of self-made is is full of examples of people who by virtue of the american uh dream let's say by virtue of increased most social mobility uh are able to overcome oppression repression of course a great example is you know frederick Douglass, who born in born enslaved who has this vision of what america could be especially post abolition where uh self-making becomes a way of saying you are not trapped by your blood but what essentially seems to have happened is that the pendulum has gone so far the other way that the kind of sacralization of freedom and particularly freedom vis-a-vis money and this kind of these kind of theology of energy as something that the individual can harness rather than must respond to or or conform to all of this creates a scenario where other people are kind of the enemy and i used to worry um sometimes that i that i was perhaps i was creating a straw man i was like is this you know we talk a lot about people who are like really into self-care and that means like not bringing soup to their sick friends or or what have you like does this exist and i i without going too much into my past week it absolutely is <laughs> oh um, please it was such a good week it is uh this this is an actual normative uh way of being in the world and i'd say probably most people don't absorb it like all the way we only uh, uh we absorb it a little bit and don't know that we are and we're kind of bombarded with these messages from advertising or like the the odd aside in the trend piece it's like well obviously self-care is important like we we kind of absorb it all culturally but i do think that increasingly more and more of us are fully subscribed to this notion that our own boundaries our own feelings our own internal sense of ourselves have more ontological weight than the humanness that comes from our given state. So at the beginning of the book, you talk about uh, a gym company that actually promises divinity through self-making. And in this case, literally making your own uh, muscular self uh, as you would like. Absolutely. I think that this is like, especially in the, the sort of post-religious era anyway, this is like super normal or and this is just like becoming a god or becoming godlike is uncontroverted incontrovertibly a desirable goal. Like there's no sense of like do we want this? What does this mean? It's like like Stuart Brand puts it. Um we are as gods. We better start acting like it. And I, again, I don't think this is 100% a bad thing. I think self-making can be a powerfully liberatory. I think the human capacity for creation, including self-creation, is part of who we are. We tell stories about ourselves. We There is something internal and irreducible about ourselves that cannot be reduced to any category to which we might belong, be it of birth or society or what have you. We are not reducible to our gender or our race or our class. Um, and I think that the the best version of this impulse, and obviously I'm biased here, the sort of Christian liberal tradition, I think, that says um, 
there is something irreducible and holy and good about the individual that is that is separate from any membership they might have in the obvious given. There is something that transcends the given that is their themness. That is what I want to hold on to. And I think even the kind of art artistic vision of attempting to express that thisness externally can be uh, at times a beautiful and a wondrous thing. I, uh, for all that I criticize the dandies, the European dandies, the European dandy tradition, I think something that they hold on to that is valuable is in an era to uh, paraphrase Benjamin of mechanical reproduction, where everything is being mass produced. The, the vision of the dandy being like, I am an original. I cannot be mass produced. I am me and I am not like anyone else. Like, that is good, actually. We should keep that. But where I think that this mentality is troubles me is not the notion that like individual people can't choose who they are in the world or they can't choose how to express themselves or 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 outwardly express uh, a, a vision of themselves that is closer to their self-understanding. All that is good as part of, let's say, a holistic view of the self that also says, I am a neighbor. I am a sibling. In cases where there is not abuse or something horrific, you know, I obviously want to set those cases aside, but like in kind of roughly normal cases of being part of a, of a, of a polity that is flawed or troubling while not being um, violent or abusive, um, there's this sort of sense that like all of this can be discarded or all of the like I should not have to go through certain kinds of difficulty because this is annoying like my my cringe boomer parents don't agree with me on x y and z and I don't want to go and see them in Thanksgiving and it's like self-care to not have these conversations and again every time I think am I making a straw man about this I, I think that actually uh I, this is something that is like normal enough in my own experience that I hear it. And I, I think that there there can be um, goodness and beauty in the quiet act of acknowledging that we sometimes just have to deal with each other in all of our differences and that some of what we do not choose is our membership in a polity. And that that is something, that rootedness, that is is needs to be more robustly supported in a society that valorizes pure self-making. Yeah, it's very much, you're, you're not moralistic in the book um, and you're very descriptive. And that is going to lead to circumstances in which, as with uh, Strange Rights, people pick up the book and are like, hey, I'm a self-maker. Let, let me invite Tara on a self a cruise for self-makers. Oh boy. <laughs> it's gonna yes. happen. It's gonna happen. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so because you're not moralistic, people are too possibly not going to pick up on the degree to which you find a lot of what you're describing troubling. Um, and also you do have this kind of like countervailing, but not all of this is bad. And to be fair, there is a there is some of the kind of self-making thing that is in, well, that is both sane and in the tradition. So like the idea of second nature. 
you know, we have first nature and that, you know, we have the nature that we're given and then we do something to, we, we, custom gives us a second nature and then also we can kind of like tweak custom and all of those like weird layers of nature and custom and self, um, and, and choice and like artistic self-presentation, those are all good. Like we don't have to throw out, we don't have to only be nature or we don't have to only be nature plus custom, but we've just turned up the volume like we've turned up with the gain on what I am is what I will to such an extent that it's exactly. Psychotic. Yeah. And what troubles me about that is like, I feel like it has blinded us to the very complexity of human nature. Um, I, I, I go back and I quote this in, in both my introduction, and my conclusion, but like, what is the most among the most powerful pieces of literature that in the English language is a, what a, that what a piece of work what a piece of work is a man monologue by Hamlet um, well, by Shakespeare in Hamlet and it's the the wrestling with you know uh, what a piece of work is a man and how noble in reason how infinite in faculty in form and moving how express and admirable in action how like an angel in apprehension how like a god and yet fast forward and yet what to me is this quintessence of dust like we are gods and we are dust and that is that tension is such a part of the great tradition of wrestling with humanness like we have all this freedom and in some ways we're godlike and also we will die assuming the terence humanists are wrong we will die and we will sicken and we are subject to gravity and all of that is so formative to who we are that I think that the kind of gospel of self-making forgets our humanity in an important way, not because being human means being uh, unable to do anything other than what your small community says you should do or that you have to, to dress or comport yourself in a certain way because these are the... Um, obligations at hand, but that being human is a process of discerning among our creative powers and our facticity and finding, I'm an Episcopalian, so of course I'm going to say this, a middle ground through all of that. And I, I would certainly be annoyed, uh, if someone picked up my book, I was like, oh my God, isn't this great? We're gods now. But for what it's worth, I would also be very annoyed if someone picked up my book with maybe from a more conservative perspective and was like, oh yes, like this is a book about how like all those teenagers with their like new identities are crazy because I think that that is also uh, a misreading of what I'm calling for. What I'm calling for is not uh, a criticism of the, f the freedoms that self-making has afforded many people, especially those who, who have experienced marginalization, but rather the normalizing of self-creation in the culture such that we don't see those people who don't self-create as fully human, that they must have something wrong with them. They must be, to return to uh, the opening of this conversation, you know, the, the, the blossoms that need to be cut off the, the humanity tree and I think that 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 is like what happens when you valorize self-creation at the expense of all else, when you valorize choice and desire at the expense of all else, the only way that you can 
apprehend another human being whose situation uh, is less than ideal is that they have somehow evinced a failure of desire. They just, you know, don't want to get well, as New Thought had said. Yeah, that's that's something I, I'd like to get into a bit because you, it, it seems like one of the things that's kind of poured gasoline on self-creation and kind of destroyed this creative tension between I'll say community and individuality um, is capitalism and the internet, right? Uh, you have this great phrase in your book, internet saturated hypercapitalism. Uh, and, and that really has taken an idea of self-creation that as you document has been around for a long time, at least since the Renaissance and kind of given it a, 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 a dominance um, in our daily lives that, really wouldn't have been imaginable uh, before it. Uh, is that something you could talk a little bit about? Yes, I think, I think that the internet is both a manifestation of and a driver of, of this tendency, which is to say uh, in my chapter on the rise of the internet, on transhumanism and Stuart Brand and Buckminster Fuller and all of these kind of architects of, of what is now known as the Carlifornian ideology, uh, we can see how the vision of the internet, this kind of libertarian disembodied space, cyberspace, came out of a fusion of technological capacities and the 1960s counterculture, the um, interests in, in authenticity and personal freedom in escaping again, custom, the mores of society, by creating the new disembodied, disengaged society. And I think that that ideology has always been part of the internet. Uh, there's a, I think, was it Steve Jobs back, uh, who who wrote it? And there's a Time, Time Magazine article in the 90s about tech culture that said, we owe it all to the hippies. Maybe it was Stuart Brown. But it was, it was this sense that, like, the hippies have created the internet. And I love... The hippies. Uh, I, I have many friends who are hippies and they're great. Um, but I think that, again, the belief in authenticity, in truth, in a lack of artifice, in resisting a society that is corrupt, all of these, great. All of these in the Christian tradition as well, for what it's worth. Like, we, we have a lot in common with the hippies. And yet, when the faith, the belief in certain kinds of authenticity or rejecting a corrupt society uh, go so far into the self that they turn into the self as the arbiter of what is good and pleasure and fulfillment and double for external moral strictures, that's when you kind of create a, an ideology of pure disembodiment. And that is what I think the internet came out of. And I think it is that is what the internet rewards and makes possible, because we are we all have our avatars, we all have our um, public self presentation, uh, which feeds back into our personal, financial, professional, uh, even erotic lives. When we think about like dating sites, how more and more people meet their partners, that personal branding has now become a kind of requirement. Uh, I mean, even you know. I, I am a writer and I, I would like to sell my book. And that means being funny on Twitter or like trying to be funny on Twitter and uh, getting my name out there in certain ways. And um, there is something I think incredibly tragic about the fact that 
internet saturated culture means we are we are this thing that was supposed to give us certain freedoms to have intimacy has actually just made us perform more for one another. And I think of the contrast here between like the internet I grew up with, which where like everyone was kind of reaching into the ether and making friends. And I was on live journal and a lot of us had like, we didn't use our real names. We were teenagers pouring out our hearts to other teenagers and fostering real human connection. I became close personal real life friends with many people I met at that time. Um, but I think that when the internet moved from this kind of like anarchic anonymity to our real names were associated with our pictures, were associated with our social media accounts, then suddenly the internet became about not about kind of finding kind of connections on a one on one or, or small scale level uh, where we could explore our quote unquote authentic selves outside of, you know, the small towns that didn't understand us. Uh, I'm from New York. But like, this, yeah, this, I was this, gonna say this, the, the, this is like the, the the stereotype of like the like the like weird kids, like the weird theater kids who were bullied, who like found other weird theater kids online. Um, but I think that that internet, I don't even know if it can exist because any longer, pr precisely because. Our social media identities, our online identities are so linked in with our social capital now that we, you know, the the best case scenario is you like have an anonymous extra account, but then you're always worried about being linked back to your real account. Um, so, so in a sense, maybe there was a version of this that was a freedom that was good. And then it got, I don't like saying polluted by capitalism because I think it's just really easy to point at capitalism and be like, that that's it, that's the bad thing. Um, I, I think that whatever, when a lot of people talk about capitalism in this like, capitalism is bad way, which which I, I don't not think is true. Um, I actually think what we're trying, what people are talking about more or, or trying to get at is this kind of weird enchantment, demonic-y worship of desire and money that cap sort of the moral architecture of capitalism as a kind of en engined by desire makes possible. I wish we had a word for it. I know. Well, demon capitalism, demon, demon capitalism, I think it's probably accurate. I also was kind of thinking like the what, what you were describing is like the fusion of the dandy internet with the kind of James Allen, you know, bourgeois, uh, John D. Rockefeller internet. So, like, can't we just have the dandy internet back? Um, but, you know, there were Instead issues of the with small that as well. bud chopping internet? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Instead of the small bud chopping internet. <laughs> um, I do think, so one thing that I kept thinking about as you were describing the, um, especially the, in the early chapters, the, the pressure against custom and the idea of custom being um, both arbitrary and constraining and bad, Again, that that itself is not necessarily a new slash liberal slash bad idea. So Herodotus, you know, um, I've been on a Greek kick lately for various reasons, but Herodotus has that bit where he um, imagines someone doing an experiment and bringing. I think it was Darius. He was he was imagining King Darius maybe bringing like some Greek who burns their their um their father when they die you know that's the way that you honor the body of the the dead father um 
and says, you know, what, how much money could I pay you to eat your father's body instead? And the Greek says, I would never do such a thing. And then he, and then King Darius goes to another um, sort of, from his perspective, like the Greek is one kind of barbarian. He goes to another barbarian and says like, um, who, who's where their tradition is to eat the body of their father and says, how much could I pay you to burn the body of your father instead? And, and the, that guy says, I would, you know, you couldn't pay me any amount of money to burn the body of my father. That would be incredibly disrespectful. And Herodotus, Herodotus is generally or often thought to be making a kind of anti-culture point there. And he kind of is, he is kind of doing a Margaret Mead, but not really, because what he's actually doing is he's uncovering the idea of there's a natural law of honoring parents that expresses itself in different ways. And that actually, I think, is a kind of microcosm of the way, or macrocosm, I guess, of the way that we can like think about what it means to do good self-creation as opposed to bad. Like there is, there are selves that we are and that are given to us and there is a natural law and there is nature and there is, um, and there is custom as a kind of givenness. And then, you know, both, both custom socially and then personally, um, our kind of artistic proclivities can kind of riff on that, but without rejecting the underlying givenness, both of nature and then of custom on top of that. Does that, is that a kind of like happy ending? Is, does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yep. I, I, I take the moderate position. I take the third way. I think that... <laughs> you, you are affirmed. You, are, we are, you and we, Herodotus both. I am, we are valid. Um, <laughs> you and Herodotus are valid. We hold space for you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I sometimes feel like I worry that I, I, I am not naturally a, a, a take-haver or a contrarian. I think for a long time I've worried that I, I'm too moderate in most of what I do. Um, but, you know, I actually, I do think that there is a virtue, like moderation is a deep, deep virtue. And I think precisely because it is much sexier to be like, you know what's amazing? authoritarianism and not having freedom it's so good guys and it's also amazing it's also very aesthetically exciting to be like you know what's amazing doing whatever you want eating the heads off of bats like writing 120 days of sodom yeah and it's not actually very sexy or exciting to be like so you, you, you know you you can have some dessert but you should probably eat your vegetables and maybe not all of your vegetables you know like and maybe not a bat maybe don't eat a bat uh, but uh, and I, I, I think that the kind of slow and careful moderation that comes from the recognition that we are talking about two goods here. We are talking about the good of givenness and the good of freedom. Uh, we are not talking about freedom as the thing that gets us out of the bodily prison. We're not talking about society as the only th bulwark against, you know, humans turning into vicious animals. We're talking about the fact that both our bodily facticity and our creative freedom are good. And discernment is often, I think, I think, I do think that the most political and philosophical debates at their best ought to be about the ordering of goods. And you can't have a question about the ordering of goods unless you are willing to accept that both of these are goods. I don't think you're going to get much pushback against a just third way position here. <laughs> <laughs> 
Not today. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> well, it's a wonderful book, Tara, and we recommend it to our listeners. I think I just found myself seeing a whole bunch of things that are in our culture today through a bit of a different lens through reading this book. Um, and I wouldn't have connected Albrecht Durer to OnlyFans before. Um, uh, maybe oh, he that's not totally fair. He would have totally had an OnlyFans. He would have 100% had an OnlyFans. <laughs> <laughs> like you practically did. I had not thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Just imagine Albrecht Durer during like lockdown, how, doing like a special like lockdown selfie project. All of his hair videos. No, we... His hair. He would have had so many hair videos. <laughs> so uh. that was, so that, I, I, you know, I love Albrecht Durer, but the, the, the comment from his buddies. Well, yeah, that, he had great hair. That he spends like an incredible amount of time on his hair. How does he manage to get, do his normal human tasks? Um, that was really funny. <laughs> it's nice hair. It was great hair. It was great. Yeah. I mean, where's the lie? Um, yeah. So again, Tara, can you say the name of the book and tell people where they can get it? I'm Tara Isabella Burton, and my next book, Self Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians, will be published on June 27th by Public Affairs. And you can get it anywhere. Please don't get it on Amazon. <laughs> Unless you're not going to get it otherwise, in which case, just get it on Amazon. <laughs> And since we are not part of internet-saturated hypercapitalism, that was not an ad. That was actually a, just a strong recommendation from this pod. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits, from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Claire Stober and Mariana Wright about giving up all one's money.